Good afternoon. It's Friday the 12th of May 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. And live from Damascus, we've got uh, Vanessa Bailey joining us uh, via video link. So, uh, but we're going to get kicked off here, Patrick, with Ukraine and the elusive spring offensive. Yeah, just a little a bit of an update here. This is the, the main story that's uh, uh, circulating around Ukraine here. And uh, we're calling this, there's the uh, president looking worried, looking stressed, more on that in a minute, the elusive spring offensive. Uh, they've been hinting at it, they've been threatening at it, and it hasn't really materialized. But we're told, Mike, in the last 24 hours that um, there is sort of an offensive happening, but it's not that clear if it's actually an offensive and Zelensky said he's not, they're not ready for the offensive yet, uh, but yet other ministers are saying the offensive is coming uh, at the end of May. And I've also heard another one, which is that the offensive will be in September, and then another one right before the election. So there's lots of different offensives that have been promised and threatened, but none actually have materialized here. Let's take a look at this. So this is uh, the mainstream media, UK, Telegraph, Ukraine, Russia's denying any breakthrough in Bakhmut by the Ukrainian forces. So they uh, claim they've uh, captured, recaptured two kilometers uh, on the, along the front line there in Bakhmut. Russia's, of course, denying it. So the information war continues here. And just to spice up the room a little bit here, uh, Prigozhin is also weighing in <laughs> as well. So this uh, is the head of Wagner, the head of the Wagner uh, private military uh, company there. And so Putin's troops Suffering worst expected scenario near Bakhmut, says Wagner chief Progrosian uh, here. And so there's, there's a lot of this sort of thing going on. And meanwhile, Zelensky uh, released this video yesterday, Mike, and a lot of people commented he looked really rough. And uh, we've got this clip here. He was, uh, looks like he hasn't slept for a few days. Uh, he's sort of fidgeting. Uh, he looks like he's under duress, under severe stress here. He's also been releasing a lot of uh, inflammatory uh, statements on Twitter or his handlers, whoever's writing it uh, in English. Uh, so, and yeah, it's really strange stuff like uh, you know, threats and then all sorts of you know platitudes about uh, the, the conflict, et cetera. So here's, here's one of them here. So Zelensky's promised that it's going to end badly for those in the Kremlin. Uh, those who are in the Kremlin, believe me, they will end badly. Uh, I don't know how, to be honest, but I would like it to end quickly. But they definitely won't end it. But they definitely won't end with their death. Not sure what that means. No, that seems a bit strange. And to be honest, Mike, I don't think Zelensky knows uh, either. Uh, but uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the hawkish uh, member, former Russian president here, he's uh, responded on Twitter. Uh, to the death to everybody in the Kremlin threat by Zelensky, saying the creature in green wished death on everybody in the Kremlin and not at his own hands. We do not know how anyone will die, for God's way is inscrutable. But the junkie in Kiev has a chance to die by his own hands, to die by cowardly suicide, like Hitler having swallowed dog poison, says Dmitry Medvedev. So, the war of the words, uh, it, it, it's ramping up it as can't the pressure get, builds. It can't get any hotter than it is right now. It, a lot of people believe that something's going to break. Uh, something's going to happen possibly with Zelensky. Uh, his, also, his head military commander uh, of the Ukrainian forces 
was not present at the NATO meeting, the normal briefing. He wasn't there. They sent a lower level uh, uh, representative. Um, so this is also, there's questions in the air. Where is the head uh, commander of the Ukrainian forces? So. So the question is, will it uh, end up with an expansion of the war in some way because Ukraine is not succeeding? Uh, and well, yesterday, Ben Wallace in the House of Commons decided that he was going to announce that Britain is uh, supplying Ukraine with longer range missiles. Uh, these are Storm Shadow cruise missiles. Uh, the manufacturer says they have a, these have a range of 155 miles. Uh, and you compare that with HIMARS, they have a range of 50 miles. So these are longer range. Uh, but here's the thing, Patrick, these things are uh, launched from the air. Uh, and so uh, my question is, who's going to be launching them? Are they just going to be able to sling them under a couple of MiGs? Uh, I mean, obviously, the Ukrainians saying uh, that they need, have been saying for quite some time that they need these weapons because they uh, they obviously don't feel that they can uh, you know, use missiles fired from the air their aircraft are targets, their aircraft are being shot down, so they want longer range missiles that they can launch from further away from the battlefront, is what they're saying. Uh, but the question is, will they, can you just sling these under a MiG? Uh, or do they have to, as the, as the photograph shows, do they have to be slung under a Eurofighter, a Typhoon? In which case, is it going to be the British that are firing them? Is it the Polish? Is it the uh, Slovakians? Who's going to be firing these? Well, what, one thing's clear is that it won't probably not going to be fired from a jet that's uh, being housed on an airstrip in Ukraine itself. More likely, uh, we're talking about Poland, possibly uh, another location. Uh, so th that's that's the other part of this. It's got triple redundancy, uh, 900 pounds uh, warhead explosives. This is a serious weapon. Mm -hmm. So uh, imagine if this cruise missile was used, Mike, to hit a target in Russia, within Russian territory, a city a facility or if there's civilian casualties as a result. I, I don't have to tell everybody what that means in terms of escalation. Well, indeed. So uh, first of all, let's uh, have a look at what or have a listen to what Ben Wallace said about this yesterday. In December, I informed the House that I was developing options to respond to Russia's continued aggression in a calibrated and determined manner. Today, I can confirm that the UK is donating Storm Shadow missiles to Ukraine. Storm Shadow is a long-range, conventional-only precision strike capability. It complements the long-range systems already gifted, including HIMARS and Harpoon missiles, as well as Ukraine's own Neptune cruise missile and longer-range missions elsewhere gifted. The donation of these weapon systems gives Ukraine the best chance to defend themselves against Russia's continued brutality, especially the deliberate targeting of Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, which is against international law. Ukraine has a right to be able to defend itself against this. The use of Storm Shadow will allow Ukraine to push back Russian forces based within Ukrainian sovereign territory. I'm sure the House will understand that I'm not going to further details of the capabilities, but while these weapons will give Ukraine new capability, members should recognise that these systems are not even in the same league as the Russian AS-24 Killjoy hypersonic missile or Shahed Iranian one-way Drak drones or even the caliber cruise missile with a range of over 2,000 kilometers, roughly seven times that of a Storm Shadow missile. Mm. Russia must recognize that their actions alone have led to such systems being provided to Ukraine. It is my judgment as a Defense Secretary that this is a calibrated and proportionate response to Russia's escalations. So that's Britain's position. It's calibrated, it's re response, it's, it's not so serious because it's only a seventh of the range of some of the weapons that <laughs> Russia's using. 
but uh, nonetheless, this is the uh, Russian response uh, from Dmitry Peskov. Uh, Russia is extremely negative about the supply of Storm Shadow long-range cruise missiles by Britain to Kiev. Uh, an adequate response will be required. And of course, uh, the mainstream press uh, this morning uh, taking guesses is what is meant by an adequate response. Uh, what are your thoughts? I couldn't tell you, and I don't really want to even imagine what that might be, but this, uh, this is on the back, Mike, of a number of provocations, uh, and we also saw you know, leaked intelligence, a potential scrape between Russia and Britain that was, uh, basically didn't happen because a, a missile misfired uh, on an airplane. I mean, these are the types of situations that we're now uh, encountering. And, uh, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past NATO to, to basically adopt this as a strategy of firing missiles um, at Russian positions, either in Donbass or maybe further uh, from Polish airspace or using the cover of uh, Polish airspace in order to mount uh, more uh, sophisticated attacks by air uh, like this. So, I mean, we are getting into a period of escalation here. Uh, so I think there's a lot to be worried about. Uh, okay, so let's move on to NATO then and uh, their response uh, to the arms situation. Uh, the NATO Defence Chiefs meeting uh, was taking place uh, over the last couple of days, and this is uh, Admiral Satoni Radikin, the Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, at that meeting. Um, so they're talking about ongoing military support to Ukraine. They're talking about, uh, well, Radikin was representing the UK in Brussels for the first time. Uh, and uh, uh, of course, Finland was there as a full member. Sweden was there as an invited guest. But again, they're talking about trying to ramp up the, the arms deliveries to Ukraine. It gets even better. The European Union, here's uh, Thierry, Thierry Breton, the EU Commissioner for Internal Markets, uh, really saying the European defence industry has to see how Europe can move into a war economy mode. So, the, so don't worry about feeding people or providing them with proper health care. Uh, or got affordable to, gas and electricity. Indeed, we've got to move into a war economy mode. He went on to say, we're talking about expanding existing production, modernizing production, perhaps creating new production lines and new factories uh, within plants that are already there and also reconversion of old ammunition plants, uh, which can be adapted to current standards. Uh, I think that within 12 months time with support, we will be able to ramp up produ production ca uh, capacity to 1 million shells per year in Europe. Uh, so that is their aim, uh, a war economy. And what, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, it looks like Europe's gearing up for a long, a long uh, smoldering, simmering war uh, with Russia. So uh, yeah, this, is, this reminds me of the, the Soviet wartime economy. I mean, isn't that what Brussels is becoming? Yes. Uh, you know, have you seen their three-year uh, energy projection? Uh, they're banking on energy scarcity to to run the uh, European economy for the next uh, three years. Mm. I mean, so the Soviet Union collapsed and was replaced by another Soviet, one that's based in Brussels. Um, so in an effort to maintain arms flows into Ukraine, and James Cleverly, the foreign secretary, was in the United States earlier in the week, uh, hugging and kissing Antony Blinken. Uh, they're both very keen to make sure that we all know how strong the US-UK relationship is. Uh, they were very keen uh, that we all know how great the cooperation was between them uh, in dealing with the evacuation of nationals from Sudan uh, and how very keen they are that, they, uh, that there's a negotiated settlement in, in Sudan. But unfortunately, they're not so keen uh, that there's a negotiated settlement in Ukraine. So let's have a look at uh, what Antony Blinken had to say. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it is a genuine pleasure to welcome my friend, Foreign Secretary James Coverley, back to the State Department. Uh, we're also working hand-in-hand, -hand, 
as we have been for well more than a year now, to provide support for Ukraine as it defends its people and its territory against Russia's war of aggression. We applaud the UK's pledge to match in 2023 the $2.3 billion in military support that it provided to Ukraine during the first year of the war. In addition uh, to training tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers, uh, the UK is providing uh, MLRS, uh, Challenger 2 tanks, armored vehicles, uh, anti-air missiles, uh, and other military aid that will help equip Ukraine's defenders as they work to retake more of their nation's territory in the weeks and months ahead. So in the past, we've heard the Americans criticizing the British military and saying how rubbish it is, but uh, certainly for this uh, meeting in particular, <clears throat> the, the rhetoric has changed 180 degrees, it seems. Uh, but uh, they went on to talk about how both countries are focusing on defending themselves from China, because China, of course, is the next big enemy that's coming along. Uh, but that's not all, uh, because uh, both countries uh, are very keen to work on what uh, Lincoln described as their agenda. So let's just listen to the what their agenda is all about. I think it's also important to note that even as we focused uh, today, as we do, on, uh, on Ukraine, on some of the challenges represented by uh, our respective relationships with China, uh, we equally uh, focused on a much broader agenda, uh, and that is uh, the, the needs, the concerns, uh, the imperatives for people around the world uh, as they deal and as we deal with uh, the impact of climate change, food insecurity, as I've already mentioned, uh, energy insecurity, uh, global health, uh, trying to provide uh, for more inclusive uh, economic growth uh, through work that uh, we and uh, partners in the G7 as we're preparing for the leaders meeting the G7 uh, can help uh, can help advance and support. Uh, that agenda is very much the focus of both the United Kingdom and the United States. So there we have it, Patrick. We've got we've got all the all the key agenda items: climate change, food, energy, global health. Now, when he's talking about uh, an inclusive economy, he's actually referring to inclusivity in the sense of uh, the culture wars, LGBTQ, and all this kind of stuff that's going on. Uh, Equity. And so on. Equity. Well, he was he, he was, he was talking about inclusive, inclusive, inclusivity. Everybody but anyway, gets the same. Everyone gets it, less, every, but gets the same. Right, indeed. But, but the goal of him, Mike, to say uh, we need to address energy insecurity. Uh, the United States is directly responsible for Europe's energy insecurity, and no mention of the uh, blowing up of the Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, who did that? Uh, was it Russia or was it the U.S. and its NATO partners? I think that had something to do with Europe's energy and security, Tony. Uh, but the best quote of the meeting comes from Jim, James Cleverly. Are you ready for it? Here it goes. The world is a healthier, happier, safer, more prosperous place when the United Kingdom and the United States work, work closely together, uh, and it's in our mutual interest to do so. It may be in their mutual interest, but I'm not certain about the rest of it. Vanessa, very briefly, uh, is it just me that, that dies inside when I see a British foreign secretary make a statement like that because I don't see healthy and happy people around the world anywhere that the UK and the US have been in recent years. No, I mean, the hubris is quite extraordinary, really, isn't it? I, no, there's nothing I can add to that. I'm sure most people understand the irony of that. Yes. Okay. Thank you. So they can just shuffle the uh, foreign secretary after a couple of months, right? Yes. So he's in there now. There was somebody else in there by the end of the summer. The, the bench isn't very deep, though, Mike. I think they've pretty much uh, exhausted the bench on, on, on the Tory side. Yeah, well, indeed. Who's, who's left? Where's all the young talent? 
Uh, no, well, not in the House of Commons, but OK. Uh, let's move over to the across the Atlantic again and uh, well, Donald Trump. So this was an incredible uh, spectacle is the only way to describe it. So CNN decided to uh, do the unthinkable, to uh, host a town hall meeting with Donald Trump. And uh, it was incredible. I think they lined up one of their best assassins, Caitlin Collins, uh, to shoot him down. It was a, a whole litany of gotcha questions. She had her, her sheets there and did everything from January 6th, the sex, uh, his sex trial in New York, uh, the unfinished wall, uh, what else, um, election denial, everything. It was just one after the other. And Trump somehow came out and wiped the floor on this. But they didn't get a chance to do any questions with the audience. I thought that's what a, a town hall was for. It was really, right. a, it was a trap set up to basically slay Trump on national TV. It totally backfired on CNN. His supporters are doing a victory lap. Um, and then other people are saying they should have given him a platform. How dare CNN give uh, Donald Trump a platform? So uh, his poll numbers went up consequence, consequently after that. But, but one thing he did do incredible, I mean, he gave some answers to some questions that shocked a lot of us, including on the Ukraine question. She tried to uh, do the purity test on Ukraine. Who do you want to win, Donald Trump, Russia or Ukraine? Who do you want to win? Kept asking him, asking him. And the answer he gave, uh, I thought, was it, it surprised a lot of people. But let's, uh, let's watch this clip. I was impeached by a crazy woman named Nancy Pelosi. But the Pelosi question here the is, defense. would you give Ukraine weapons and funding if you were I elected? would sit down. Let, let me just put it a nicer way. Uh, if I'm president, I will have that war settled in one day, 24 hours. How would you settle that war in one day? Because I'll meet with Putin. I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this, this country. Now, what do you, can I just follow up on that? You said you don't think in terms of winning and losing. You have Mr. To get President, Europe. can I just follow up on that? Because that's a really important Excuse statement me, let me that just you just made up. there. Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win this war? I want everybody to stop dying. They're dying. Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done. I'll have that done in 24 hours. I'll have it done. You need the power of the presidency to do it. Yeah, right. OK. So that's the divisiveness. You see how the media operate. This was just a master class in uh, how Machiavellian and underhanded the mainstream media are. And Trump somehow cut right through it and went around and got straight to the people. And you can see the reaction from the crowd. They are anti-war. Americans in general are anti-war. The media is not. Mm. The media is not, and nor is Congress and Senate. That's the problem we have. I think the same thing is true in Britain. Britain, yeah. I think the same I think thing that's is true. true. Um, okay, uh, let's move to Turkey. Now, Vanessa. Yeah, well, uh, elections on Sunday, so only two days away, and of course, uh, Two days ago, there was the quartet meeting of Turkey, Syria, Iran, and Russia in Moscow um, to discuss Turkish occupation, annexation of Syrian territory, and normalization um, of uh, political relations with uh, Syria we'll talk about in the, in the next section. 
Um, Hurriyet, uh, who are considered to be kind of rather aligned with the current government of President Erdogan, are claiming that um, Erdogan uh, will win uh, the election in the first round, basically just to explain um, if he gets above 50% of the vote in the first round, which is on Sunday, he is automatically uh, declared president. If, however, uh, it's a kind of a hung vote, he gets less than 50%, and the primary opposition, Kamal oh, I can, Kilik Daraglu um, of the CHP, the Republican Party, uh, gets a, a high percentage, it will go to a second round on the 28th of May. Um, so Sunday is is an important day, obviously, in the election, and we'll see uh, whether Erdogan comes through uh, with a high percentage of votes. They're claiming an 85% to 90% turnout, which is pretty high. Um, now, let's have, when we're talking about interference in elections, it's kind of interesting what's going on in Turkey at the moment. There is a definite battle going on between the non-aligned axis, the so-called multipolar axis of Russia and Iran, uh, and China to some extent, and then of course Syria, um, and the US. The US is very much coming down on the side of the Turkish opposition leader, Kilik uh, Daruglu <laughs> of the CHP or the Republican Party, um, as is the media. If you actually take a look, just do a search on whatever engine you use, and you will see the majority of Western media supporting in one way or another the opposition to Erdogan. So the Turkish opposition, this is where the interference comes in and it, it's kind of quite funny. It's very clearly uh, defined who is supporting who by the rhetoric that's coming from both candidates. So the Turkish opposition leader accuses Russia of spreading conspiracies, deep fakes ahead of election. This is just after another opposition member um, basically pulled out of the race after sex tape allegations. And then if you go forward, um, Kilik Daroglu went on Twitter and said uh, to his Russian friends, you're behind the montages, conspiracies, deep fakes and tapes that were exposed in this country yesterday without providing further details. If you want our friendship after May the 15th, get your hands off the Turkish state. We are still in favor of cooperation and friendship. So a clear threat there from uh, the CHP party. Uh, as I mentioned, the mainstream media are definitely pushing uh, Kilidaroglu as the, the politician touted as the future of Turkish democracy. The Guardian is a pretty good example um, of the media headlines in the West. Um, going forward again, um, but if you remember in 2016, there was a CIA-backed coup to effectively remove Erdogan from power back then. And then uh, I'd actually missed this. I, I found this today when I was going through uh, some of the information on previous elections, that in 2020, Joe Biden, um, prior to his own election, hinted at interference in Turkey's 2023 elections in an interview with the New York Times editorial uh, board, one of the most extraordinary quotes that came out of that interview is in the next slide. Yeah. Um, so he basically said in this interview, it's on record, and this was prior to his election as president, I'm still of the view that if we were to engage more directly like I was doing with them, meaning the Turks, 
that we can support those elements of the Turkish leadership that still exist and get more from them and embolden them to be able to take on and defeat Erdogan, not by a coup, not by a coup, he repeats, but by the electoral process. Well, I mean, I don't know what you two think, but that to me sounds very much like interference in Turkish political affairs, but still moving on. Um, so then I recommend everybody um, follows this guy, MK, another one that's difficult, uh, Badra Kumar. He was the former Indian ambassador to Turkey, um, gives some really excellent insights, not only into the elections, but into politics in Turkey. And basically what he says in this particular article, he points out the main reason that the US is anti-Erdogan. There are a number of reasons, one of which uh, Erdogan has actually been throwing around um, accusations against the opposition of being very much pro-Western um, policies like LGBT and so on and so forth and promising that he will maintain the conservative line in Turkey. So that's also kind of interesting. Uh, Kilda Karaglu is, is basically denying that. Um, but of course, uh, what, what the Indian ambassador says, the bottom line is, of course, the close, friendly, mutually beneficial relationship that Erdogan forged with Russia. Now, this has old history. He points out the new kids on the block do not know that Ataturk himself was on friendly terms with the Bolsheviks in the Cold War era too. Ankara, its NATO membership notwithstanding, maintained a certain non-alignment with the United States. Succinctly put, Erdogan has only reverted to that past, but openly and built on it rapidly, being in a hurry to position Turkey optimally in the emerging multipolar world order. So there you have it. That's the reason why the U.S. doesn't want Erdogan uh, re-elected. Thoughts? Well, uh, just to add to that, uh, this is a great article here uh, by Dr. John Arrington. Uh, it's at 21st century, a momentous election or decisive referendum. What's at stake here is really the, the shape of the future Turkish state. Um, Erdogan is, and the AKP party have ushered in this kind of Islamicization uh, and really uh, they've suspended the effectively the Kemalist Republic um, and the, they've made it into, they want to make it into more of an Islamic state, not like ISIS per se, but like bringing Islam more into the center of political life and uh, social uh, society in Turkey. So this is a fundamental, if, if Erdogan AKP lose this election, that project could be wound down. So it, this is a do or die for, and it's a long project. It's been going for since 1994. This has been a gradual transition. And then the election, they chose the day, May 14th, the 100 year anniversary of the foundation of the Kemalist secular Turkish Republic. So very, very symbolic. Uh, so there's a lot at stake, not just on the NATO side and geopolitically, um, but like regionally, uh, Turkey wants Erdogan, their vision, AKP is to, to have Turkey at the center of Islamic life in the world, sort of uh, on par where it used to be uh, with the Ottoman Empire. So this, this is a big, a big nation building, new nation building project, make Turkey great again, as, uh, or the new Turkey. Right. So Erdogan is your is your sort of Trump, but I think he's even more extreme than Trump. And and, and as Vanessa said, using American tactics of uh, Russian interference, and then based Erdogan uh, here, he's calling the opposition gay, 
He said at a recent rally, he said uh, in the run up to, to this week, he said, we know that Mr. Kamal is an LGBT person. And so he's basically saying that uh, the CHP is LGBT, the uh, IYI party is LGBT, the HDP is LGBT. These are all the six, uh, the six coalition parties that form uh, uh, Kamal uh, Kilik Daruglu's uh, coalition. So I think I got that right. Uh, but so, so you can see he's really playing on this here and basically saying that um, as the People's Alliance, his, his uh, coalition, we are against all this. Uh, and a family is sacred to us. A strong family means a strong nation. No matter what they do, God is enough for us. So you've totally different departure here uh, in terms of politics. Mm -hmm. So I think this is very significant. And uh, so it'll be, it, it'll be a make or break for this uh, new New Turkey project on Sunday. Vanessa. In Turkey, uh, particularly Westerners that are living there and, you know, are very aware of the COVID project and what's incoming um, through the Western-centric global power grab are saying that Kalik Daraglu is the one that is going to be bringing in all of the WEF measures, the CBDC, the, you know, the Digital Alliance and all the rest of it. So they are genuinely worried if he gets in. So it's it's kind of between a rock and a hard place, the two candidates in, in Turkey right now. Yeah, Turkey's an interesting, last thing I'll say, they're an outlier in terms of NATO. I think we can all agree. Mm -hmm. But the the Erdogan government, the, the current Turkey, they're very realist in their worldview outlook. In other words, the, no no close friends, uh, try, you know, it's enemies, they have enemies. But... Um, they're definitely not among, uh, of, of the sort of the globalist, the, the current Turkish regime. It's not of the globalist vein. They act in their own realist interests. Mm -hmm. And so they see eye to eye with Russia in that respect. If a new, this new government comes in uh, that's more pro-U.S. and the U.S. has more sway, that will change. So it, I think there's a lot, a lot to, uh, to consider there. Okay, thank you both. Uh, now, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially from ukcolumn.org or ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, and uh, well, uh, London tomorrow, the Truth Be Told uh, conference. Uh, well, it's a public right. event rally taking place uh, at uh, 1 p.m. Trafalgar Square. Uh, you, Patrick, uh, Dr. Mike Eden, Andrew Bridgen, Tess Laurie, uh, Ross Jones, others speaking. Yeah, so it looks like it's going to be a great event. Okay, and it's, if you aren't able to get to it, I mean, get to it if you possibly can, but if you aren't, it'll be live-streamed at Children's Health Defense. Uh, the URL is on screen at the moment. Now, sticking with Andrew Bridgen, he has decided that he uh, needs to sue uh, Matt Hancock for the comments that Matt Hancock made uh, with accusing Andrew Bridgen of being an anti-Semite. Anti so uh, uh, this is uh, what he said. Mr. Hancock's comments were an attempt to shut down valid concerns expressed by me. I think that's a fairly uh, straight comment and fairly uh, clear to be correct. Uh, Hancock, or at least a spokesman for Hancock, said this. Vaccines save lives, and Matt will always defend science and progress against unfounded conspiracy theories that put people's health at risk. So I haven't seen a specific comment from Matt Hancock himself about this. Uh, basically, uh, Andrew Bridgen taking him to high court uh, on a charge of on a defamation charge, and we'll see how that goes. 
Do you think they'd want to settle uh, before trial on that? Because that, discovery might be a little bit uncomfortable for some people. Well, indeed. And uh, I think that uh, is a very valid point. Uh, I look forward to seeing how this plays out. Uh, okay, let's move on then. Uh, the Department of Homeland Security. Well, I saw this up at uh, Zero Hedge this week, Mike. This is just unbelievable. Uh, the, the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, they're, they're producing videos teaching citizens how to identify radicalized conservatives in this case. And so there was a FOIA request here. This is from America First Legal. And uh, they've obtained these documents through FOIA requests uh, from DHS. And they're meant to depict different scenarios in which you know any of us as, as a citizen uh, might encounter a potentially radicalized individual. And they include some of the screenshots from this document here. It's crazy if you look at this. So this one is a, is a suburban housewife. Uh, and so she's become radicalized here. She's got uh, pro-life leanings. And what do you do when you run into someone like Anne? Uh, well, and, and it gives you all these different scenarios here. Uh, so you suspect she might be radicalized. How do you interface with her? Should you report her? I mean, this is like East Germany sort of Stasi stuff here. And uh, here's another one. Uh, how do you deal with, in this case, uh, uh, someone at the hair salon? Uh, you've been at Anne's hairdresser for years. During one of Anne's visits, she brings up a pro-life uh, argument and begins ranting. Should you, A, call the sheriff? Uh, should talk to coworkers? Go online to do more research about which groups Anne's talking about? Call Ann's husband or contact Ann's uh, pastor or preacher. Stop by her house and uh, check and see if she's okay. So look, this is basically, here we go. So and if she brings up pro-life arguments. So this is the, this is the biggest law enforcement agency in, the, in America doing these how-to videos of how to profile all different citizens in different situations, uh, radicalized conservatives. And, and the, the pro-life thing is big. Uh, who defines who is radicalized? They do. They do. Yeah, they do. Law enforcement does. Law enforcement does. So as we know, it's totally arbitrary like everything else, mm -hmm. uh, as we said on this program before. So this is just uh, politically political targeting, basically, here. So I think that's, uh, yeah, I think that's incredible. So uh, we might have more of the same coming uh, our way here. Uh, I'm sure that uh, this is already something we're dealing with. And uh, okay, yeah, this one's interesting here. Yeah, Courtney, ah, an old high school friend who's a budding conspiracy theorist, radicalized suspect Courtney in her mid-30s, divorced. What, do you, what should you do if you encounter an old high school chum who's become radicalized? And it gives you a sort of how-to list of how to report them, possibly get in touch with somebody, etc. I mean, this is crazy. So this is, as you said, pure Stasi stuff. Now, uh, obviously, Nina Jankovic uh, was attempting to, uh, within the remit of the Department of Homeland Security, uh, bring in a massive censorship regime. But this takes it to a whole new level. So this is encouraging local communities to, well, to build a, a, a culture of fear within local communities that causes people to self-censor. And totally legitimate issues you're talking about. Yes. Um, are they too constitutional? I've seen this before in, uh, in other documents, but the, the way that they're doing here, this is what they did with Arabs and Muslims post 9-11. This, this is the sort of thing that was common. So pro, everyone's being profiled, very much like the prevent strategy in the UK. So just to, to compare uh, pretty much along the same lines. 
I wouldn't be surprised if they were, you know, in, uh, consulted or inspired by Prevent. They thought, wow, that's working so well in the UK. Let's implement that in the United States. Yes. Okay. Now uh, let's come back to the UK then. And obviously, the economic news yesterday was that the Bank of England has pushed uh, interest rates up to four and a half percent. Lots of people getting very worried about that because of the implications for the mortgages. This is all because inflation is too high. Uh, the bank saying it's been around ten percent since last summer, so they've raised interest rates to make sure inflation falls and stays low. But then they say we expect inflation to fall quickly this year and then meet our target. 2% target by late 2024. And so uh, some commentators asking, well, hold on a second. Uh, it's generally accepted that rising it, raising interest rates takes uh, roughly 18 months to work its way through the system and have any major effect. So if they think that, it, that inflation is really going to start falling immediately, uh, then why are they even doing this? But anyway, uh, we'll come on to that a bit more in a second. Let's just look at what interest rates have done. Uh, as you can see, uh, they were up around the uh, five six percent level uh, around 2007 2008. Then they collapsed to not, almost nothing as a result of uh, the banking cover, the bailout of the banks in 2008. And since then, uh, they've been bumbling along the bottom right up until, as we know, uh, a couple of years ago when they started creeping back up again. And we're now back up to four and a half percent. And uh, well, this is the story that the Bank of England is saying that inflation is going to do. It's going to uh, completely reverse itself and fall like a stone. There is no evidence whatsoever that this is the case, uh, because although um, we've seen some falls in uh, the re- uh, so the wholesale price of energy, for example, uh, we're not seeing uh, those uh, price falls coming to the retail level. And this is the fascinating bit about it. So we're seeing, uh, for example, at every every area, whether it be energy prices, food prices, even interest rates on bank accounts. Uh, if you look at the uh, the bank base rate has been rising, 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 but that's not coming through the savings rates. So the banks are not passing this on to the consumer. So, uh, so this is the main problem. But let's just briefly have a look at what Andrew Bailey, if you can stomach it, uh, had to say yesterday about this. Today, we've raised interest rates to 4.5% and updated our assessment of the UK economy. The economic situation is tough, but the economy is doing a bit better than we thought. Energy prices have fallen, unemployment is low, and we now think we'll manage to avoid a recession. But inflation is still too high. With food prices rising particularly fast, many people are rightly worried about the increasing cost of living. We do think inflation will fall quite sharply from now. We think it will halve by the end of the year and be back to our 2% target by the end of 2024. But we need to be sure this happens, and that's why we have raised interest rates today. Raising interest rates is the best way to make sure inflation falls and stays low. We know that isn't easy when money is tight, but it's vital we bring inflation down so that the economy can grow, create new jobs and prosper. So he's acknowledging that money is tight. So it's not that there's so much money sloshing around the economy that's driving the inflation, but no mention of what is driving the inflation, no mention of the massive expansion in the money supply since uh, the coronavirus, the policies around coronavirus and the shutdown of the economy and so on. Uh, So anyway, I thought we'd just leave uh, this particular segment uh, with this poll on Twitter from Kevin, uh, who asked, uh, in your opinion, is the Bank of England corrupt? 
2,791 votes when I took this uh, screenshot this morning, uh, and 75.8% of people believing they are. I think it, it goes beyond corruption. Uh, but anyway, uh, many, many people now suggesting that uh, uh, it's time for the current leadership of the bank to go. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on then. Uh, Vanessa, uh, Iraq's foreign ministry uh, announcing that Syria is back in the club. <laughs> yes, so on the 7th of May, and, and this has kind of set off a whole round of reactions from the West, predominantly from the US and the UK, which I'll come on to. The spokesman for Iraq's foreign ministry, Ahmed al-Fakhaf, announced that the Arab foreign ministers who met on Sunday behind closed doors in Cairo have agreed on the return of Syria to the Arab League after nearly 12 years of suspension. I do have to add to this that many of these countries, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, Jordan, even um, Iraq, are also aware that they need to start pivoting east because their countries are liable to be targeted, particularly Egypt, um, with the explosion of events in Sudan and, and probably this kind of um, uh, warfare to continue uh, in Africa, as we've discussed before. Um, but also a number of other events have gone on. It's difficult to cover all of them, but I'll, I'll take out the main ones. So Iraq, on the 10th of May, uh, signed an agreement with Iran to expand energy ties and establish a joint office aimed at overlooking cooperation between the two countries, the Iraqi oil ministry announced coming as part of Iranian oil minister Javed Alji's visit to Baghdad. Um, this, of course, also seeks to um, fall into the de-dollarization um, project because, of course, the U.S. has been sanctioning billions in Iraqi funds, which are owing to Iran, to impede cooperation between Iraq and Iran. One third um, of electricity and gas comes from Iran to Iraq. And of course, more recently, the US has been triggering ISIS terrorist fighters to attack uh, sorry, uh, electrical um, facilities uh, in Iraq. Many people are not aware of that. They have done that um, historically in Syria, but also in Iraq. Now, the next bit of good news, um, I've written about this in greater detail at my Substack. if people want to go there. It's the last article that was published. Um, there is talk between Syria and Iraq of reopening the Kirkuk to Banyas pipeline. Now, historically, this pipeline was actually established in 1952 by the Bechtel uh, Corporation, who were known probably um, for their savage, savage exploitation of the 2003 unlawful aggression by the U.S. and its allies against um, Iraq. Um, and then, basically, it has a long history, which I detail in um, my article. Um, but basically, it was bombed by the U.S. Uh, in the first Gulf War and in the second Gulf War, and in 2010, reopened. But then uh, when the 2011 regime change war started, um, basically uh, ISIS were introduced into the areas where the pipeline ran and that made it impossible to keep it running. So the US interference to prevent this pipeline um, has been extensive throughout history. 
what will the pipeline do? It will increase the alliance between Russia and Iran because Iran is looking at connecting to the pipeline from Iran to Iraq. Um, it means that Iraq can bypass the Kurdish uh, contras that are occupying oil fields in Iraq. 12% of its oil produce comes from Kirkuk. And it means um, an activation of the Syrian oil processing um, industry in Banyas. It means an increase in trade to the maritime port connected to Banyas, etc. So it's a kind of win-win situation for Syria and Iraq, which means, of course, the U.S. will try its best um, to put obstacles in the way, including uh, sanctions and the triggering of ISIS terrorist groups. Um, on the 10th of May, we had the quartet meeting that I mentioned between Iran, Russia, um, Turkey and uh, Syria to discuss the so-called normalization of relations um, between Turkey and Syria. Um, a lot of people have published the next photo saying, look at the body language, and I do have to agree. On the left, you have uh, His Excellency Faisal Muqtad, the foreign minister of Syria, and on the right, Mevlut Cavusoglu. I'm probably murdering the Turkish names, and I apologize to anyone from Turkey who's watching. Um, and you can see there that Mekdad is a far more um, in-power, uh, bullish uh, body language compared to a rather diminutive Cavusoglu uh, in the photo. Now, of course, we also know that Syria uh, has dug its heels in. It has the red line that it will not normalize relations without Turkish withdrawal, both of its own military and of its terrorist proxies from Syrian territory. But however, let's look at what Sergei Lavrov uh, said after the meeting. The process of normalization of relations between Turkey and the Syrian Arab Republic opens up new opportunities for the Astana format, which was set up in 2017 to try and find a political resolution to the crisis in Syria. Um, according also uh, to uh, the foreign minister's statements, there is to be a military quartet set up in Syria between the four countries to try and also resolve the military situation. That's not mentioned in these comments, but moving on. So the next slide, um, facilitating the safe and voluntary return of refugees to Syria is a key principle. Well, of course, it is also for Erdogan, 5 million uh, Syrian refugees on Turkish territory. That's a big um, electoral uh, campaign strategy to get at least 1 million of those re refugees returned um, to Syria. <clears throat> um, a roadmap for a settlement in Syria should be prepared for the next meeting of the foreign ministries of Turkey, Syria, Iran, and the Russian Federation, and later it will be presented to the presidents. The launch of the Turkish-Syrian normalization process has a positive impact on the situation in the region and the Middle East as a whole, um, the reasons for which have been discussed previously, but obviously for NATO, the last thing they want is normalization between uh, Syria and Turkey, hence the interference, in my opinion, in the elections in Turkey. Now, an interesting thing that Lavrov did say, um, and I have also received uh, information that this has been happening for some time. According to our data, the Americans have started to create the so-called, and I put in brackets, new Free Syrian Army near the Syrian city of Raqqa, engaging local Arab tribes along with militants from ISIS and other terrorist organizations. The goal is clear, 
to use these militants against Syria's legitimate authorities in order to, again, I've added, re-destabilize the situation in the country. So in response to Syria's rejoining um, the Arab League, the club, as you called it, Mike, what is uh, the US and, of course, the UK doing? Reigniting um, the terrorist war against Syrian Arab army and its allies. So on the 10th of May, we had the Syrian Ministry of Interior put out a statement that a police vehicle had exploded within the compound of Barze police station. Um, sorry, that's Yeah, I'm sorry that the text is... Yeah, no, sorry it's okay. Um, in uh, Damascus, um, now, until now, they haven't issued a statement as to what was the cause. But, you know, we've had on and off a number of terrorist sleeper cell uh, IED attacks um, and detonations in Damascus. So that's another clear connection to the U.S. displeasure. And then finally, U.S. lawmakers introduce a bill to combat normalization with Syria's Assad. So let's have a look at what that bill entails. A bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers introduced a bill on Thursday intended to bar the American government from recognizing Bashar al-Assad as Syria's president and to enhance Washington's ability to impose sanctions, a warning to other countries normalizing relations with Assad. The bill would prohibit the government from recognizing or normalizing relations with any Syrian government led by Assad, who is under US sanctions, and expands on, I didn't understand how they could expand on, the Caesar Act, which imposed a tough round of sanctions on Syria in 2020 under the Trump administration. But here we go. The bill's provisions include a requirement that the Secretary of State provide Congress with a strategy for countering normalization with Assad's government, including a list of diplomatic meetings between Syria's government and Turkey, the UAE, Egypt, and others. So that means also Jordan, Iraq, etc. every year for five years. The legislation would also pave the way for sanctions to be imposed on airports that allow landings by Syrian Arab airlines and another carrier, Sham Wings. If passed, the bill would also require a review of transactions, including donations over $50,000 in areas of Syria held by Assad's government by anyone in Turkey, the UAE, Egypt, and several other countries. So, you know, it, the U.S. is a very sore loser. That's about the only comment I can make on that. Yeah. <laughs> and the question I have is, what, what is the remedy for lifting sanctions Against Syria, what, what, what does the what does the U.S. want? Do they want them to hand over the keys to Damascus Gate to to ISIS? Is that is that part of the uh, requirement for lifting sanctions? Or what have they articulated well, I mean, what they actually want? I mean, the amazing thing is, all of these measures are only going to hasten the de-dollarization. And as Marco Rubio said, as soon as de-dollarization comes in their economic warfare, warfare becomes null and void, right? So just as they're complaining about how Russia's actions alone trigger the need to supply weapons to Ukraine, everything that they're doing in the region and in Syria is triggering exactly what they don't want to happen, which is pan-Arabism, the increase, the expansion of relations between regional countries with Iran, et cetera, et cetera. So everything they're doing is pushing Syria to do exactly what they don't want them to do. <laughs> or what they say they don't want them to do. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I might be being a bit cynical here, Vanessa, but, but I see them building an enemy for themselves. Yeah. 
The regime change yeah, is what they want. Yes. Yeah, that's oh, what they God. want. They want regime change. That's it. That's that's the, that's the uh, condition yes. for lifting sanctions. Get rid of the government. Well, yeah, absolutely. And and so what they'll do, of course, is they'll try to annex other parts of of Syria. So if they bring in the opposition candidate in Turkey, potentially they will try to get him to annex northern territory. They will continue pouring millions into the northwest, into their into Abu Jalani, into their you know cleaned up. Al-Qaeda leader uh, party. And then in the Northeast, they'll try and annex territory, which Victoria Newland has already spoken publicly about for the so-called autonomous region for the Kurdish countries. So yeah, if they can't achieve regime change, what they'll achieve is the control of almost all borders of Syria by hostile states and a a centralized, marooned uh, Syria. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you for that. Now let's uh, move back to the United States, uh, Patrick. And uh, Mark Anderson's been talking about the border issues in Texas uh, over the last several weeks, uh, but it seems to be coming to a head. Yeah, we talked about European immigration um, issues and also in Republic of Ireland, a very controversial topic at the moment there as well. But uh, this thing in America is shaping up to be something epic. Uh, so they're bracing for the uh, repeal of Title 42. This the Title 42, by the way, this photo is from a caravan in 2021. Uh, this wasn't from CNN's website. We're just juxtaposing those two. Okay. But Title 42 basically uh, allowed the government and the Border Patrol to, to restrict and halt the flow of immigrants from the southern border because of COVID to stop the spread of disease, okay? So they're repealing that along with the other sort of other mandates and uh, vaccine restrictions to fly into into the US. So uh, there's hundreds of thousands of migrants poised to come into into the United States and not just from Central America, but from a total of 120 different countries, okay? And among them, you see they're they're estimating there's uh, 20,000 Chinese, there's 10,000 Russians, there's uh, 20,000 from the Middle East, different countries, basically. So you coming through this port. So unfettered uh, immigration, possibly here. Uh, so this is what this scene looks like in American cities. The outgoing mayor, Lori, Lori Lightfoot, declares a state of emergency over migrants arriving in Chicago. We've reached breaking point. She'll be uh, cycled out of power uh, any day now. But this is typical here in New York, similar problems here. Now, when you go down south into Texas, it's an even bigger issue. They're expecting the numbers could be upwards of 1 million, okay, in, in the coming weeks and months because of this. So here's a video clip from El Paso, Texas. This is a major border crossing. And just watch it just to get an idea. This is an American city, but go ahead and roll this clip.
Uh, those are quite incredible scenes. So a lot, a lot of uh, you'll see you'll see similar scenes like this in Seattle, downtown Los Angeles. Um, uh, the other uh, San Francisco comes to mind, obviously. Not all from migrants, Mike, but homeless people as well, and people with uh, substance abuse problems and things like that. So you know, America's cities are already at breaking point, especially Democrat-run cities. That's not a partisan remark. It's just a fact. It's just a statement of fact. So. They want uh, Democrats are advocating for open, basically open borders. They said, let them all in and we'll deal with them once they're inside the country. Uh, and there's even Democrat uh, lawmakers that want to let them in without checking their identity or papers or anything like that. So think about the gang problems coming, MS-13s and a whole myriad of other gangs coming from Honduras, uh, El Salvador, Guatemala, uh, drug cartel activities. is already a huge human trafficking element to this, which is a multi-billion dollar industry mm. per year industry, the human trafficking industry. So, and again, and, and then the, the charities are there waiting at the border and the NGOs to take them into their loving arms. Uh, umpteen Catholic charities, loads of Soros funded NGOs as well. So there's a whole political element to this that's undeniable. And I think this is probably gonna be one of the most contentious election issues mm. uh, for the upcoming election. So uh, brace yourself. Okay, and we'll end today uh, coming back to the UK. And this is a bill which is going through Parliament at the minute, the Retained EU Law Revocation and Reform Bill. Uh, this is a bill to revoke certain, e sorry, to revoke retained EU law to make provision relating to interpretation of retained EU law and its relationship with other law and so on. So what are we talking about here? Well, uh, the current count, I believe, is something around 4,800 pieces of individual pieces of legislation that are on the statute books as a result of the UK's uh, membership of the European Union. Obviously, after Brexit, uh, those uh, reta were retained uh, so for whatever reason, uh, and uh, uh, the government decided that they wanted to revoke all these pieces of legislation and replace them with British uh, legislation instead. Uh, a number of people, mostly on the Remain side of the argument, had uh, figured that this was going to cause problems because lots of uh, law would drop through the cracks, would be missed, uh, and would fall, out of the, fall off the statute book altogether. Uh, so the government uh, in that uh, piece of legislation was intending that the uh, EU retained law would, would come off the statute books by 31st of December this year at the latest. That's all 4,800 pieces of legislation. Um, well, the government has now decided that they're going to reduce that number. They're going to aim for 600. Uh, they're going to choose 600 of those pieces of legislation instead uh, by the end of the year, and they're going to put an amendment into the bill to try to uh, make that happen. Uh, but the problem is they didn't tell Parliament, as usual, as this government does, they didn't tell Parliament uh, before uh, they told the press and briefed the journalists and so on. Um, so there was a bit of an exchange in the House of Commons yesterday. I just thought we would end the programme with that. So let's just have a look at what happened. Before we begin the urgent question, I know that it is highly regrettable that the government decided not to offer an oral statement on this matter yesterday. Yeah. Given the importance of this announcement, on such matters, full engagement with Parliament and its committees is essential. Before I call the Chair, I will remind the government we are elected to hear it first, not to read it in the Telegraph, and certainly not a WMS is satisfactory on such an important matter. Hence, 
that I would always say I am now going to call the Chair of the European Scrutiny Committee to ask the urgent question. Sir William Cash. Uh, thank, you, Mr. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. I am uh, very sorry that the sequencing uh, that we chose was not to your satisfaction. I was... Uh, uh, <laughs> order, 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 order. That is totally not acceptable. No. Who do you think you're speaking to, Secretary of State? I don't want. I think we need to understand each other. I am the defender of this House and these benches on both sides. I am not going to be spoken to by a Secretary of State who is absolutely not accepting my ruling. Take it with good grace and accept it that members should hear it first, not a WMS or what you decide. These members have been elected by their constituents and they have the right to hear it first. And it is time this government recognised we're all elected, we're all members of Parliament and use the correct manners. Secretary of State. Oof. He is a bit... Oh, I've never seen him that lively before. Well, that might be indeed. his high water mark, I think. Yeah, his high water mark. Yeah. So, but but it, does, it is an important point. Uh, this particular government doesn't, I'm not just talking about Rishi Sunak, but going back to Liz Truss and, and Boris Johnson before them, uh, th they have systematically uh, used the press in order to release uh, this type of news instead of going to the House of Commons. Uh, and uh, it's been a common theme uh, that they've been criticised for that, but they don't want to, uh, they don't want to follow the rules. Well, okay. What about our democratic uh, values and traditions what we, happened to we, all that? We no longer live in a democracy, uh, Patrick. That's what happened to all that. Anyway, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you very much, uh, Patrick and Vanessa. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra. It'll be just be Vanessa and me today. Uh, and uh, we'll see you then. Otherwise, uh, have a great weekend. And uh, we'll be back as usual at 1 p.m. on Monday. Bye-bye.